0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. What is human nature? It's a question that's intrigued philosophers for as long as there's been philosophy. It's also where quite a lot of political philosophy begins, imagining how our nature would have us live in a world before government. If humans have a consistent nature, then it matters a great deal whether it's inherently cooperative and loving or competitive and violent, because the answer to that will impact what kind of politics we can reasonably expect and what sorts of institutions are possible and desirable. Our guest today, Nicholas A. Christakis of Yale University, studies human nature in a variety of contexts. He argues that our genes affect not only our bodies and behaviors, but also our societies, which are surprisingly similar worldwide. Humans everywhere experience love, make friends, have social networks, cooperate, and create societies that are generally based on caring and trust. In today's episode, we discuss how and why humans cooperate. We explore what we can learn about human societies from exploring different cultures, and even different species. And we ask whether our evolutionary heritage should guide us when thinking about political questions. joining us today is Nicholas A. Christakis. He directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University where he is the Sterling Professor of Sociology, Medicine, Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, Statistics and Data Science and Biomedical Engineering. He is the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. His new book is Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm noticing you guys are very soft-spoken, <laughs> you have very, very soothing voices. I feel like late-night jazz. Up, so. you know, like, yeah.
2: He's got, Aaron's got the NPR voice. Yeah, exactly. I'm a little bit more on the rock
0: side, but you can come in here. And, yeah. <laughs> okay, so looking around at, at the world today, especially the ways we all seem to increasingly hate each other, mm. isn't it kind of odd to write a 400-plus page book arguing that natural selection shaped us to live together in peace and cooperation.
1: And no, first of all, I think the book if anything, I mean in terms of its sort of uh, policy or political agenda, I hope is hitting the zeitgeist in the right way, which is to say, wait a minute, things are not as bad as you think and also we are capable of being better. So, I don't think I mean the book, I started writing the book 10 years ago and it happened to be published now in this moment where we have century levels of inequality, socioeconomic inequality that are a century high levels, levels of political polarization, which are you know extremely high, uh, nationalism worldwide. We have a climate change. We have a lot of problems, a lot of challenges. But at the same time, I actually think the story is pretty good and I think it's good in two ways if I could. Uh, one is it's not just good in the way that Steven Pinker argues, which is that over the last three or four hundred years in a historical sense. Because of technological advances that began in Europe and then spread around the world, primarily, and philosophical moves that again began in Europe and spread around the world, because of those Enlightenment innovations, philosophical and technological innovations, everything is better. You know, we are healthier, wealthier, we live longer. um, You know, it's more peaceful. The world. I, I think Stephen is quite is totally right about those arguments, but my argument is that we don't just need to. We don't just have to rely on historical forces that give an account of a good life. Actually, deeper, more powerful, more ancient forces are at work propelling a good society. And that for hundreds of thousands of years, evolution has shaped us to be good. And so despite all this badness that you alluded to, there's actually some very deep and fundamental goodness in human beings, which equips us with a capacity to live together well. And that's essentially what I'm arguing. It seems a little bit different than
2: the kind of thrust of discussion of human nature for a lot of the enlightenment or post-enlightenment period where whether it was the kind of Hobbesian people who are inherently bad, or at least they're going to stab you in your sleep, or I'm with, a Rousseauian, or Rousseauian, yeah, or you get into like anthropologists and proto-anthropologists mm. of so the 19th and 20th century who discuss the savage races. I'm putting that in scare quotes and how different they are from people and how this is clearly not at all like the European. They may not, even, they may not even be the same species. Obviously, very race-based stuff, but but overall, include and then you get into modern anthropologists like Franz Boas and Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead, it seemed like they focused more on differences mm-hmm. than similarities. So, so you think that was the wrong way of looking at it at the time?
1: Well, I mean actually, yes. That's also interesting because I mean, I'm very much a kind of humanist, a kind of universalist. I think that there is much more that unites us than divides us worldwide. And I think that it's very easy to go around the world, whether you're an anthropologist or a tourist. And to go into a place and and notice the differences, you know, these people dress differently than we do. They have different language. They have different religion. They worship different gods. They eat different foods. They smell different. It's different, you know. And um, there's a famous passage from Julius Caesar, and he goes, you know, the the Visigoths are different than we are, or something. I'm making that up. My classics sucks, okay. but uh, but anyway, the gist is people have always observed difference, and. Um, and uh, But, you know, to me, that's not what's interesting because, you know, equally when you go into a new society, you're initially shocked by these differences. But then if you pay any attention, you see that these people love their partners. They um, have friends. They feel good in the company of their friends. They work together to achieve objectives. They cooperate. They teach each other things. They, um, they have all of these universal traits, these good qualities that we humans, in my view, have been shaped by natural selection to have. And so I think in some ways it's like, it's like we're obsessed with difference. We, it's it, it's like I use the metaphor in the book of like standing on a plateau at 10,000 feet and uh, seeing two hills that are 300 and 900 feet and being so taken with the difference in the size of these hills and then realizing when you step back that actually you are on a 10,000 foot plateau and actually these are two mountains of 10,300 feet and 10,900 feet and they're really those 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 differences due to culture are superficial and tiny you know you were focused on like the erosion that was affecting these hill sizes but actually there are these plate tectonic forces that are lifting up these mountains and those are the more powerful forces that shape our our, our lives together so that's what i try to provide an account of
0: Why don't we – I mean so that the example of the plateau and looking at the mountains makes sense, but why don't we seem to pay as much attention to – the similarities in the way that – like when we go out into the world and I'm, I'm encountering new people, I go into a new place, mm-hmm. um, I naturally seek out people with whom I have similarities. I'm noticing them mm-hmm. then, right? Like I, these people share my interests and these people want to eat at the same restaurant I do and they're the ones I want to befriend. Mm-hmm. But it seems like then when we take a step back and either we look at people who are distant – more distant from us um, or we from – you know, as anthropologists look at humanity as a whole or we're studying them as subjects, that's when the – let's look at differences comes out and so what's what's driving that is it, is it simply that we don't have something to compare ourselves to so they you know we kind of just it's the water that we swim in
1: It's a number of things. First of all, just to back up a moment, there's a long tradition even in anthropology of looking for cultural universals or privileging difference. And those guys have been fighting amongst themselves about that for over 100 years. And mostly the the difference-based guys have been winning out because, you know, they've been more interested in differences and and noticing uh, how different cultures solve problems of living in a particular environment and so forth. But there have been very powerful voices within anthropology about cultural universals for a very long time. First point. Second, more generally in science, there are a, a long-standing debate that even Charles Darwin, I think he was the first to describe it as lumpers versus splitters, right? There are people you know, there are people, botanists who go out and look at plants and there's some of them are looking for unifying themes that unify all these are all plants that are like and others that are saying, no, we need to understand every single plant and, you know, we need to, you know, engage in, you know, collecting every specimen of everything and, and focusing on the differences. Um, so, and, and, and you can even think about it a little bit as scientists who are more interested in measures of central tendency, like what's the average of a distribution, where scientists that are more interested in looking at the variance, you know, how, what's the spread in a distribution. So. So, there, so there's so it's important to recognize that even within anthropology and even within science more generally, there are powerful strands militating towards understanding um, sort of commonalities and not just differences. Now, in terms of our innate desires to focus on difference, part of this has evolved as well. You know, our ability or our or our um, interest in defining who's in and who's out, us versus them, sort of an in-group is again one of our evolved capacities for living together for better or worse actually it's, this is you're sort of zooming in on one of the more depressing aspects of our evolved sociality you know why is it that we are so interested in in noticing differences and in identifying you know who's one of us? why why do we prefer the company of people we resemble at all you know in the first place? And, um, and most accounts of the origins of this preference, in my view, tend to be tautological. You know, they say, well, uh, we prefer the company of people we resemble because we're more comfortable in their presence. Why are we more comfortable in their presence because we resemble them? So you get this kind of circular argument and actually providing a deep account for the origins of homophily or and also the origin, which is a distinct idea, the the preference, for people we resemble and the origins of in-group bias, which is the sort of favoring our own groups in preference to other groups, is one of the things I, I do in, in the book actually. well,
2: Burrus that, that Well, the next – goes right to my next question, which is you talk a little bit about Gemeinschaft and Geschelschaft in the book, which also Friedrich Hayek, who is who's a big – we're a big fan of Harry Cato. Uh, he, he brought – Trevor Very up smart guy. Shots, and yes. And on this question of in-group, out-group where you say that – on your Gemeinschaft, you can maybe keep track of 150 people, and you can have per- personal relations within those. But a large, open, and personal society can't be like that. So it almost necessitates dividing to some extent because we can't hold the whole world in yeah, our head, well, I right? I think.
1: I mean, I think there's a difference between face-to-face relationships and and sort of more anonymous relationships where we act, interact with people as functionaries, as fulfilling a role, you know, for example, as bureaucrats. Um, And so, so in fact, I think often you find that when societies get – you know, we experience – often in modern society, we experience our everyday interactions as a kind of alienation. We we interact with people, uh, you know – the traffic police, uh, vendors at stores. These are sort of anonymous, faceless, impersonal interactions and we experience them as alienating because we evolved to have real face-to-face relationships with people that we really know. And so in a way, it's, we have, this is like frightening. This is like being outside of your group and being with some other group that, you know, might not like you or might kill you because these people don't know you. But that's different than uh, the point about you know um, l- liking your own group and wanting a certain kinds of of social intimacy, so sort of to return a little bit to sort of to move away from the Gemeinschaft-Gesellschaft kind of distinction and back a little bit towards the notion of in-group versus out-group, you might well ask, how and why did we evolve this desire to be with our own group in the first place? And there are a couple of theories about this. So let's imagine. You have a um, you know, thousand people in some population and um, and you go to these people and you tell them um, you need to um, cooperate so evolution from an evolutionary perspective it would be fantastic if all these people could work together to achieve some objective. But you, you, you give this challenge to every member of this population and it's, it's a prohibitive challenge because why should they cooperate with other people? It's too many people to cooperate with. Um, if they're nice to you today, they might never see you again. The population is so large. Uh, they might, uh, they might not remember you. They can't track a thousand different people. And so faced with that challenge in a group of a thousand of people cooperating, nobody cooperates with anybody. And so cooperation does not emerge in such a population. So if evolution could equip us with certain capacities that would allow us to cooperate despite being in a population of that size, that would be strongly favored, the emergence of these capacities. Well, in fact, there are a couple of such capacities. So one capacity, and both of them have to do with what's known as adding structure to the population. So imagine now you go to this group of a 1,000 and you – you divide it into 10 groups of 100 and you give each of them a flag. So there's the purple flags and the green flags and the blue flags. And you tell everyone in the population, you know what? Just cooperate with the people that are carrying your color flag. Now everyone looks around. They only have to cooperate with 100 people and they're likely to see those people again and they can track those 100 people. So now all of a sudden, all the blue flag people are cooperating with the blue flag people and the purple flag people with the purple flag people and so forth. So now from a population point of view, you've got a lot more cooperation. In the previous example, no cooperation, which is bad. In the current example, more cooperation, some cooperation. So that would be favored. That ability to signal membership in groups and to detect membership in groups would be strongly favored by evolution if it could emerge. And in fact, this is one account of why it did emerge, one account of in-group bias. And this is known as adding structure to a population. Now, this is extremely depressing to me. I have to be honest with you. Like, I don't like the fact that we are this way. um, And we're not the only animals that are that way, incidentally. But- Evolution also gave us another way of adding structure to the population, which is much more pleasant, and that is it gave us the capacity to have friends. Now, this is exceptionally rare in the animal kingdom. So many animals have sex with each other, they mate with each other, but we don't just mate with each other, we befriend each other, we form long-term, non-reproductive unions with other members of our species, namely we have friends. This is very rare. It's seen in us, certain other primates, elephants, certain cetaceans and a few other groups, but that's it. So now now we have evolved the capacity for friendship and how does that work? Well, you go to this population of 1,000 and you tell them, okay, each of you are going to have a few friends. You have three friends. You have four friends. I have five friends. He has six friends. He has two friends. People have different numbers of friends and you create a network. You add structure to this population. Instead of every one of the thousand mixing in with everyone else, people have their own overlapping sets of friends. And now you say, you know what? Just be nice to your friends. So each person is nice to their friends. And as a result of that, you get more cooperation in the system, a different way of adding structure. So anyway, so the point is, is that we have evolved these these qualities that are all interconnected and- um, and that allow us to work together. And one of those qualities, unfortunately, is this distinction this, that we are prone to make between us and then them. And I'll, I'll say one other thing, and then I'll shut up. I need to mention that this distinction between us and them, us and them, the cognitive ability to do that often is along arbitrary lines. And that also is a, that also gives us a little lever to address. Uh, hatred in our society, which we can talk about if you want.
0: I want to come back to that. But first, this – what you just discussed gives kind of a peek into – there's this evolutionary psychology framework that you're using here. Um, One of the questions that people have about it or one of the critiques they have about it is that what you just did is you identified what seemed to be traits that – humans have that that seem to be universal we don't know many people who don't have friends and don't seem to have a capacity about five them. or
1: six percent of the population has no one that they can it's call a talk free. to yes it's very sad but we can talk Especially about that together yes.
0: but and then what you've done is you have you've told a story about how that might have been yes. advantageous or might have come about but that's not necessarily the same thing as showing that that's actually how it came right. about. And does it – so how do we know as a po- that it's not just a story told to tie evidence together? Yes. And, and does it have any – from a scientific standpoint, does it have any predictive power? Can we do anything with that story once we've told it to say, now here's a novel, new thing, new prediction? Yes.
1: Yeah, I can answer that question in a number of ways. First, what the way – a partial answer would be to say, what would you say if I told you that if we went and we mapped the social networks of elephants – that they had the same mathematical structure as ours. You know, that if elephant friendships look just like ours. Our last common ancestor with elephants was 85 million years ago. That animal did not live socially. It was a small shrew-like creature. Um, And yet, these elephants, by independent convergent evolution, evolve social interaction structures that are – have very similar mathematical properties to ours.
2: Well, that would – that uh, that piece of data by itself wouldn't necessarily – underscore this that evolutionary psychology because you could say that we're the only ones and they like no actually elephants too and it's like okay well there, there's a different reason for both of these possibly or could have come from somewhere else uh, if you guys were the only ones then maybe this evolutionary story is true but we have nothing in common with elephants so now it seems like we're just sort of Identify arbitrary things. No, we
1: have in common with elephants the challenge of living socially, and they solve the problem. So the argument is there's only one way of living socially if you're a mammal, leaving aside the eusocial insects for you know who are clones, which is a different challenge. So um, no, so quite the opposite. This finding finding evidence of convergent evolution on these traits in other mammals is very powerful evidence that this is not a just so story. Now. You, you might want to argue that friendship in elephants means something different than friendship in us and we could have that debate just like monogamy in birds may mean something different than monogamy in us and so forth. But nevertheless, the independent evolution of social monogamy in the primate order multiple times or the independent evolution of friendship across very disparate orders to me is very powerful evidence that there is some, some, some problem that evolution is solving by equipping us with these capacities and then we can go and look at that problem and say, okay, well, wait a minute. Whatever problem it's solving has to be the same in in elephants and in us. So there are some predictions you can make, and we've we've published some papers that say that if this was the way that evolution had um, had shaped our capacity for friendship, it should also have given us certain other qualities i can give you a couple of very quick examples one has to do with the actual structure of the networks which uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of explain a little bit and the other has to do with something known as homophily which is the fact that we prefer friends that resemble us um, so on the on the on the structure thing imagine that you have um, you have a hundred people and you have 500 connections that you could make between them so on average each person might have let's say five connections but but uh, but it could vary so, if you, if in your mind's eye, you might be able to see, uh, for example, a network emerging of of the, of the people connected to each other, and you should also be able to see in your mind's eye that there are different structures to that network. You know, that you could arrange the people in a ring, for example, or you could have a random jumble of ties, or you could have everyone have the same number of ties, uh, or you know, there, there are various kinds of um, mathematical structures of the network that you could imagine. Now, it turns out that Of all the ways you could arrange the ties, there's one way that you could arrange them that would give the group a certain advantage, namely an ability to resist epidemics. So that – and how does that work? Well, there's something known as degree assortativity. A degree assortative network is that popular people befriend popular people and unpopular people befriend unpopular people. And a degree disassortative network is the opposite. Popular people befriend unpopular people. The airplane – the airport network in this country is degree disassortative you you can't fly from a small airport to a small airport you have to go to a hub and then go back to a small airport so all the all the small airports are connected all the unpopular airports are connected to popular airports and to go to them you you have to transit through the popular airport as it were that's a degree disassortative network Human networks are not organized that way. The opposite. In the human networks, you know, the New Haven airport is connected to the Lebanon, New Hampshire airport. Uh, and, you know, and then the Chicago is connected to Denver. And those are the connections. Okay. That's how human networks are organized. So, um, so, but it turns out that if you organize a network in a degree assortative way, it gives the whole population extra immunity against uh, spreading diseases. Why? Because if you had a degree disassortative network, as soon as the disease took root in any member of the population, it would go right to the most popular person, and then down to everyone else. So it turns out that degree assortativity, this property of popular people befriending popular people and unpopular unpopular, confers a kind of herd immunity to the population. And lo and behold. Of all the kind of networks that we humans could form ourselves into, we do this. And not only we do it, but also dolphins do it. Also elephants do it. Other species, have when they evolve networks, also evolve degree assortativity as part of it. So you can make a prediction – in other words, you could say, well, if it's true that humans form friendships and that these friendships have been shaped by evolution, we would predict on first principles that this would be a property that the evolution would favor and then we go and we do an experiment and we measure it and we find, ah, they do do that.
2: Well, it's interesting too because on Aaron's question doesn't – I mean  that Evidence for that this happened historically um, but then you've also brought in other tools to the game in, in your lab at, at Yale and sort of sort of saying how does this actually happen if you run people through these experiments real time? That doesn't demonstrate that it's what happened historically to Correct. humans, but you can line things up and make inferences there. Uh, so how does that process that you that you do work and just in terms of fielding together sort of experimental groups and, and right. what are so, some of the things you learn from that?
1: Right. So um yeah. <laughs> So you know, if you were a mad scientist, which in in some days I feel like I am, you know, if you um, <laughs> without any institutional review boards, yes, exactly. and, and no I mean, morals constraints, no yeah. limitless yeah. budget, no yeah. morals, yeah. you know, if you were a mad scientist, what you would love to do, and, and you were interested in the in the kind of fundamental origins of human social order, as I am, what you would love to do is take a group of human beings as babies and abandon them on some faraway island, and somehow magically have them be raised in an a Cultural way, you you don't enculture them in, with any particular perspective, and then feed them, and then you come back, you know, twenty years later, and you see, well, what kind of social order do they have? For example, do they have friends? Do their networks look like ours, etc.? Do they have hierarchy? You know, do they have in-group bias? Do they have all these qualities we're discussing? Now, of course, you can't do that. So, the book in in Blueprint, what I talk a little bit about is, well, what are some uh, initially, what are some approximations of that? What are some natural experiments that might be like that? Now, incidentally, that experiment that I alluded to has been called the forbidden experiment, and powerful rulers for thousands of years have imagined such an experiment, usually with an eye towards detecting what kind of language is innate to us. So, what they did is, is they would take the, the, allegedly this is, this they did do this they would take some babies and give them to a mute shepherd up in the mountains to raise, and then come back and see what language did the babies speak. So this would be like
2: an act like. A king, an emperor, yes. or someone who had the yes, power exactly. to do this. Right.
1: Yeah. And yeah, And Herodotus talks about how the I, you know, 2,500 years ago or something, did this. And then I think, uh, King, one of the King Jameses in Scotland in the 15th century did this. Allegedly, in his case, he was interested in what language did Adam and Eve speak. You know, it was kind of a theological or biblical question. And, uh, and allegedly those children, when they were raised, spoke passable Hebrew. Trevor um, so, Burrus you know, uh, I'm a little skeptical. Yeah, me too, actually, that, of this. I don't know what the scientific you know. Anyway, so if you're a mad scientist, you would like to do this kind of this forbidden experiment, you can't. So in the book, I talk a little bit about some proxies to that and one is um, One proxy is unintentional situations in which people were thrown together, um, for example, shipwrecks. And I look at uh, 20 shipwrecks uh, that occurred between 1500 and 1900 and that evolved at least 19 people that were stranded for at least 2 months like how what kind of what kind of social features did they develop when they were like given this chance to make society anew i look at many intentional communities you know the communes in the united states kibbutzes uh, you know uh, s- settlements of scientists in Antarctica uh communitarian movements of different kinds. I look at the settlement of Polynesia, you know when groups of people were like n- intentionally or unintentionally went the- to these islands. I-, I looked at the Shackleton expedition, I looked at uh, Pitcairn Island, you know the mutiny on the Bounty et cetera. I Look at many examples, and the last thing I did is what you asked me about, which is in my laboratory we 've developed some software that allows us to create temporary artificial societies of real people. Where in this godlike way we can um, we can organize societies, and this software is integrated with online labor markets, where we can pay research subjects a little bit of money to come and spend an hour in our lab. And over thirty thousand people have participated in our experiments. For example, we can experimentally create societies in which the wealth is equally or unequally distributed. Same amount of wealth in this group of people, we give everyone the same. In this group of people, we give them different amounts. We set the, actual money to well, this actual money to play. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We we set the gini to be 0.2 or 0.4 or whatever we want and then we have the people interact and we can test you know how how what is the effect of in economic inequality on the uh, social experience of these uh, people so we, we've done many, many, many such experiments and we've looked at the origins of cooperation, we've looked at network structure and so forth. And, and so that too, those artificial societies also is convergent evidence because we find that when we organize the societies to have particular properties, they function better. Uh, and these properties we can test, experimentally test which, what those properties are.
0: Does this mean you know how to fix Twitter?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've been talking. So I, uh, so, um, Jack Dorsey, I've met him a couple of times actually, and I've met with some people at Twitter and, um, I, I I don't know if I can fix Twitter, but I, I like Twitter very much and I would like to help fix it if possible.
2: So uh one of the experiments that you, you have in pictures in your book uh is trying to get people to pay for public goods, which is on yes. the uh, libertarian political question that's very interesting. And, uh, so what, what did you find in terms of cooperation on just whether or not people would voluntarily give to yeah, public so, goods?
1: Trevor Burrus Yeah, we've done a lot of experiments with the with the maintenance the creation and maintenance of public goods. And um I have um a very dear friend of mine who's a very strong libertarian who I really like a lot and he challenges me he's like he you know believes for example that there's nothing wrong with the private ownership of roads for example and you know I mean he's quite um quite committed
2: and uh, <laughs> Well, there's and, certainly nothing wrong with the private ownership of roads yes but
1: i mean to the exclusion of state ownership <laughs> okay. of roads you, right, right. <laughs> uh, you know and uh, so you know he's he's um and i i really enjoy uh, his mind and um I enjoy talking to him a lot and he really challenges me. He he thinks that people should be able to sell their organs of course and their votes and you know lots of ideas.
2: Anyway, well, I know some people like that. Aaron, do you know anyone like that?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So anyway, so we often talk to him about the creation and maintenance of public goods. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, any tools that we could have evolved that would allow us to make the whole greater than the sum of its parts? would be strongly favored in evolution. And the experiment you're alluding to is an experiment in which we experiment with what we call social fluidity, which is the extent to which people can, who they interact with, the freedom, freedom of assembly basically. Now, here 's how it works let 's say you put a group of people in a rigid network, so you have let 's say twenty people for the sake of argument, and you have a particular network structure, so uh, you know imagine like a little jumble of uh, of Christmas tree lights. you know the lights are people and the wires are the things, some kind of a complicated jumble that you put them in, and every spot in the network is a human being, and some people have two and three and four and five connections, whatever they have and they 're distributed in the network but let 's say you make that rigid and you drop the people into that network and you tell them, okay. You now need to cooperate with your neighbors. If, if you give a little money to your neighbors, we will double it and divide it among your neighbors. Everyone will benefit, but you'll pay a little price. Of course, if your neighbors cooperate as well, then you will, and reciprocate, you will gain and the whole group will thrive. So I drop you in this group and, um, and what happens is, is you find that, um, pretty quickly, about, typically about 65% of the people at the beginning will cooperate, will be nice to their neighbors. These are strangers to them. But, their neighbors start taking advantage of them, some jerks in the system. And so after a while, you're like, why should I keep being nice to these people? And so they become jerks too. And before you know it, you start from a situation in which two-thirds of the people were cooperators. And by the end – Everyone has become a defector. Tech, what's technically known as a defector. No one is collaborating, and the society collapses. In fact, in the image, there's like a little few collaborators yeah, on like, the edge. Yeah, three <laughs> blue bu- people left who are yes. cooperating. Everyone else is red. Everybody, they're, yeah, and they're this, keeping society alive, like is, on the yeah. edge. You know, they're just working together. On this the is edge.
2: what the society of jerks looks like. Yes, yes. exactly.
1: Yeah, and, and 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 so in a different branch of the experiment, in addition to allowing everyone to decide at every time step whether to be nice to their neighbors or not, whether to cooperate or defect, we also give them a little bit of power to choose to keep their ties or to break their ties. So we add a little social fluidity to the system. And what we find in that situation is that cooperation thrives. So it's not – in other words, because what happens is, is that you can cut ties to guys that are taking advantage of you. And form ties to people that are nice. And just the existence of that opportunity, even if it's not enacted, uh, allows cooperation to flourish. More generally, what we've been able to show across many experiments is, is that I can take a group of people and I connect them one way and they're really sweet to each other. Or I take the same people and connect them another way and they're mean jerks to each other. So so these properties of cooperation and goodness are not just properties of individuals. They're they're properties of collections of individuals which we can experimentally control. Let me – can I give you another metaphor? Please. In a subsequent experiment, we we experimentally manipulated how much social fluidity was there. So on one extreme, we had a, a very rigid society where everyone is assigned their friends and neighbors and can never – Stuck with them forever. And at the other extreme, you can imagine 100% social fluidity so that every given time step, uh, you know, there's, you have new connections and everything in between. And what we found is if that's on the x-axis is social fluidity and on the y-axis is cooperation, we found a parabolic shape so that optimal group performance was achieved at middling levels of social fluidity. And, and many institutions in our society I think, exist for this reason. Example, divorce laws. In a society in which divorce is impossible, if you are married to someone who is mean to you, your only alternative is to also become mean and so the marriage collapses. Nobody invests in the marriage and it goes away. Mm -hmm. At the other extreme, if you have a new partner every day, if your wife changes every day, why would you invest in this partner? She'll be gone tomorrow. So marriage collapses. So what you want is a society in which divorce is difficult but not impossible. You want a a set of policy regimes that incentivize people to stay connected and invest in each other but not uh, be stuck. So this parabolic shape. Another example is the home mortgage deduction policy. So imagine that we're in like Stalin is Russia and everyone assigns you your house and you're stuck with a house forever and your neighbors puts, you know, put graffiti on the house and put the garbage in the hallways and why would you clean, why would you make any effort to clean the public area because, you know, your neighbors are polluting it and so everyone becomes a polluter in that type of situation. Or conversely, imagine that every day you have new neighbors. You wouldn't make an investment. Why would you clean your neighbor's yard or your own yard, you know, the the sidewalk if you're going to have new neighbors the next day? So you want policies that make residential moves difficult but not impossible. Right. You want to incentivize people to like make an investment in their communities, but not make them stuck in their communities. Trevor
2: Burrus It's interesting. You went from you're like marriage law, home mortgage deduction, and I was like (laughs) which which generally we're not favor- I'm not in favor of, but I can see the point here in terms of Well, Well, I use that
1: example, but it could be any number of social policies. it's it's this freedom of assembly issue you want to you want to preserve the freedom of assembly you want people to be able to associate with those to whom they want but you also don't want to make it so that the society has total anonymity right you don't want a society in which every day you have new connections you you need some kind of stability in social connections at least that's how we evolved to uh to manifest these qualities
0: so i think a couple of weeks ago we had we did an episode on the role of science in politics and one of the issues that we discussed was this question of science can tell us things, it can make descriptive statements about the nature of the world, um, but it doesn't it doesn't bring the normative angle into it, like the what we should do with it. And the policy making depends on a lot of things. And so what you've just described, we can we can identify some policies, but I guess the question is like how do we put how do we take what you've written or what you've been discovering in your experiments um, and operationalize it in the world in a way where we can we can get the good stuff like we can adjust the institutions this way so that we get better cooperation or more stable cooperation without drifting in the direction of the kind of prohibited experiments that we don't want people doing where we're you know we're just making radical changes in a bunch of people's lives and kind of hoping for the best um, or or making changes that might not work like that, that connection because I, I can see a worry that we could take the science of this book and we could get the, the authoritarian guy who's like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to rebuild society along these lines. I'm going to mandate that everyone have five friends and
2: 65% of people cooperate. Right. And- so,
1: yeah. So, I, in fact, discussed that head on in the last chapter of the book because if anything, what I argue is that you are right, that that type of authoritarian top-down specification of social order is bound to fail. So, for example, you have societies that try to uh, – you know, like the Stasi in East Germany that try to get rid of friendship by uh, making everyone suspicious of each other. That's not a, that's not a, a, a strategy that is going to endure or succeed. Uh, the, it, it, in, in societies from like uh, communist societies in North Korea or in um, – uh, you know, amongst the Khmer Rouge or, uh, or even in communitarian, you know, communes and stuff, uh, love of a family and family life is seen as a threat, right? Because you're supposed to be committed to the leader and the whole group, not have intimate devotion to particular individuals. So many of those groups, many of those societies try to eliminate, for example, love, which is another evolved capacity we have that I talk about, our capacity for love. They try to Tamp down on that or friendship, you know, where everyone's supposed to dress the same, you address everyone as comrade, you're not supposed to make distinctions between people. This does not work. Uh, We human beings, we have these innate capacities that cannot, you know, can temporarily be suppressed. Incidentally, they often lead to the same objectives lead to oddly inconsistent policies. So for example, Intimate sexual relations are often seen as threats to communal order because, again, you would like be in love with your partner and not like feel loyalty to the group. So what do these communitarian movements do? They either go to the extreme of saying, well, we're going to have polyamory and everyone should and can have sex with each other a kind of orgy kind of model, or they go to the root of the shakers and they say, well, nobody can have sex with each other. Makes reproduction difficult. difficult I mean, right.
2: even cultural reproduction.
1: Yes, exactly. Difficult. Well, the shakers are a special case for that reason too. But the point is, both of those extremes are actually tackling the same problem, which is they, they don't want family units. They don't want people to feel devotion to their children and offspring and parents and, and, uh, and uh, loved ones and so forth. Anyway, the point though is that you can try to swim against this tide but only f- with huge effort and pressure and only for so long. So I would argue that a deeper understanding of our evolved social nature and social order provides guidance or it provides an outline of the constraints against which social policy can operate, not a specification towards which social policy should operate. So, um, so I think that if you go out and you try to do things that that are against what I call the social suite, these evolved capacities that we have, they won't work. You're also you, you know the is odd question uh, that you put on the table, um, Aaron, is is also something that I try to wrestle with, and this is a, a difficult um, problem that has been discussed in moral philosophy for a very long time. And here I make use of the the work of a moral philosopher by the name of Philip afoot in the 20th century British tradition of moral philosophy and she argues that you can avoid a kind of naturalistic fallacy and you know, I, I'm trying to provide an explanation for the evolutionary origin of a good society. What do I mean by good? And here I make use of what sh- some of her arguments and she says, for instance, you can define good by reference to the purpose of an entity. So for example, we can speak of a good clock. What do we mean when we speak of a good clock? Well, when we specify what a clock is for, it's to tell time. Once we specify that constraint, then we can speak of this clock as a good clock or it's not a good clock. And she's a very famous essay which I think has a sentence in it that goes something like, in moral philosophy, I think it is helpful to think about plants. And, uh, and, uh, what she means by that is you can think about what it means to have good roots. So a plant has a certain purpose and these roots are good. Or they're not good, and so it's in that way that I think we can speak about a good society. What kind of society is good for us to live together successfully? Human nature has
2: not been terribly popular in some areas of the academy over the past (laughs) fifty years, and especially I would say twenty years. Uh, Even as I mentioned, we were off air. Aaron and I went to school together. We went to Boulder. And we took some literary criticism classes, and 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 some of these things where you start talking about this is the right way of ordering a society. You, you I'm hearing the some professors I've had say this is just a centralism, right? There's, there's yes. monogamy, pair bonding is pure construct of you know whatever that's Western tr- civilization. Yeah, that's not true. Yeah, I'm that there's no evidence adventures. for that belief. Yes, <laughs> um, or you know that this is not this is this is sort of taking pre-existing power structure and say we can't have that. I mean, obviously as you pointed out, I mean whether was the experimental communities of the nineteenth century in you know Michigan or, or Massachusetts, or you had hippie communes who said we're, we're going to take all this stuff away? We don't need any of this stuff anymore. We're Not going to have any pair bonding. We're not going to we're going to our kibitzing. We're not, not going to raise our children. We're not going to have pair bonding between. Uh, in a, so people think that human nature. Ha- I mean maybe it does have an inherently political ramification to it in some sense like
1: well I I mean this is the whole tabula rasa you know thing that people think that you know there you know that we are born without any any um innate tendencies and and that's just a patently false uh you know not every way we live is a is, is culturally constructed you know now of course the culture is hugely important in human beings uh, I'm not rejecting the role of culture but I I don't think that there's much evidence for the claim that you know you can make any sort of human being and you can make any sort of society and we have much evidence against that that belief and that claim. So um now the politicization of of academia you
2: know, and human and human nature in particular for I mean there's a lot of ways it's politicized but in the yes. human nature thing is a Well I mean I think one. people
1: are worried that if you were to characterize certain ways of being. So for example, I'm very careful in the book for instance I don't take a stand like notice I'm speaking about love. Like I, I, I'm not, be, I'm not heteronormative. Like you know, gay couples can be in love, of course, and uh, and also I'm not even I'm not even talking about strict social monogamy. You know, like polyandrous societies, polygynous societies, there's love in those societies. So, so what I'm arguing for is that these fundamental qualities and, and, and the list of my qual the qualities that I consider to be universal, or, you know, love. Uh, first of all, identity. We didn't talk about that. The, the the capacity to be a unique individual. Very ironically, is an essential. Essential feature of of social life you you can't organize a society unless at least among mammals unless uh, non clones so like amongst the ants and the wasps you can they're they're genetically identical, so in a way it doesn't matter who 's who you're just nice to everyone because they 're yourself <laughs> uh, but uh, but amongst us, you need to be able to track who's who 's who us and certain other social mammals. Anyway, identity, love, friendship, uh, social networks, cooperation, mild hierarchy. We are a society that doesn't do well. We're a species that doesn't do well when there's no hierarchy or when there's extreme hierarchy uh, in group bias and teaching. Another thing we haven't talked about, which is this miraculous thing that we all take for granted, which is that in every society around the world, we teach each other things. That's so
2: we have a predilection to transmit culture and yes. watch it, you talk about mimicry in babies, for example, who will mimic. I mean, yes. you wouldn't have culture without some dis- gene to tra- transfer. Yes, it correct. So cassowaries but, don't have culture. Yes, which <laughs> maybe well, the most isolated being on the planet. Yes, <laughs> like, <laughs> yes,
1: yes. I mean, some birds have traditions, but you yeah. know, full blown culture is sort of uh, very unusual in the animal kingdom. But but here is the point: just to back up for a moment. So so most animals can learn. A little fish swimming in the sea can learn that if it swims up to the light, it will find food there. So they learn independently. Some animals do better than that. They learn socially. So you put your hand in the fire, you learn that fire burns, you've acquired some knowledge, fire burns, you paid a price, your hand is burnt uh, or I can watch you put your hand in the fire and I gain almost as much knowledge but I pay none of the price. So social learning is incredibly efficient. You know, you eat the red berries and you die. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to eat red berries. I mean, that's like extraordinary. You know, I can watch you do that and, and acquire this wisdom. Okay, so that's social learning. This is uncommon in the animal kingdom. But we do something that's even rarer, which is we teach each other things. We set out to teach each other things. This, too, is a cultural universal, like love and friendship and cooperation and so forth. Everywhere you go, every human being on the planet, every society practices this thing. So we started our conversation talking about difference, you know, like how people wear different things or eat different foods or have different gods. Yes, they do. But that's not to me what's the interesting thing. What's interesting to me is what we all share in common. And this then plays into a certain philosophical, even political commitment to what I would regard to be our shared humanity, our common humanity. We are all human beings and and we can understand each other uh, through this commonality, and I think that's a part, a salve to this kind of division that's so ascendant in our society today. This notion that you can reduce people to the groups that they're members of is really, is, 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 I think not only unsound from a kind of evolutionary point of view, but also in a, and politically dangerous in my view. But it's 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 not it's not the kind of morality that I want to practice. I want to believe that even though you're different than me, I can relate to you as a human being and we have all these fundamental qualities in common. And so for me, it's a rather happy, even though it's a very scientific set of ideas, it's also a very happy set at least for me.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r freethoughtspodcast Free Thoughts Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.